0: this might be surprising or not, but my first degree that I pursued in college was in digital animation, uh, which I got really excited about that because the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out when I was in high school and they used just awesome CGI, digital animation to make those films. And I saw that and I was like, I think this is what I want to try to do. And so for my first year of college, I went with my best friend from Wisconsin out to Arizona. We studied at UAT, the University of Advancing Technology. Pretty awesome for anybody. If anybody's kind of nerdy, you're like, yeah, UHE. But it was, there was the the population of that school was about 90 percent male, 10 percent female. So the, the ladies got asked out a lot because there was you know kind of a, a unbalance there. But that was my first place I went to school. And one of the projects I had to do was uh, like this clay model. You know, you have to learn how to like draw on paper and you know, sculpt things in order to kind of know how to put things in digitally. And I'm going to show you the creation I made. Get ready. That was cool. So who is this? Donkey. 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 I could have said, what is this? And it's the same answer, right? It's a donkey named Donkey. But this, I had really liked the Shrek films. Uh, and I was like, what should I do for this class? And I decided to make uh, a Donkey. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want to share with you one of the conversations that Shrek and Donkey have. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to read this in the Scottish accent that Shrek has. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what comes out. Uh, so they're talking to each other, walking through like this cornfield in the first film, and uh, Shrek is trying to explain the Donkey like it's more, you know, it's more complicated than that. And then he says, "Okay, let's try this out." And you, you've heard, you've probably heard, you know, pure Scottish accents over in the UK. You so go you're what? Do you want me to- I was going to say, maybe you would read it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough, baby. <laughs> but, yeah, I know. I, that's probably really, probably really offensive, sorry. Uh, so anyway, he says, for your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Distracting, or should I just go, keep going again? And then Donkey says, example. Example, OK, ogres are like onions. They stink, they make you cry, you leave them out in the sun, they get all brown, start sprouting little white hairs. No, layers. Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. Onions have layers. You get it? We both have layers. Should I try that again another time? Was that okay? Wood and candy? Okay, thanks. You can tell me what you really think after. because You know there's no lying in a church building. Right? <laughs> but anyway, so so they're having this conversation. He's like, there's more to us. There's these layers. And we're, we have that too. We have these like layers to who we are. And if you think about like Instagram... Uh, on Instagram, you can make this choice to put like a filter on your photos to make them you know, look better or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But then there's kind of people who will say, oh, check this photo out, like no filter. Like this looks good, but just no filter on it. And, but we have these ways of kind of like having layers to who we are, or we might put filters on who we are. So we kind of like screen out what's really going on inside of us that we, it's like, well, peel back the layers. Maybe I look calm and cool and collected on the outside, but peel back the layers. And you'll find fear or anger or sadness or take the filter off and you'll see like what's really inside of us. And so what if there was like no filter on what you think and feel? What if we peel back the layers to what's really going on inside of you? Or what if people heard what you really want to say or saw what you really want to do or knew what you really feel or what you really think? What if we took filters off of us, our lives, our reactions to people? What if we peel back the layers? What would we find inside of us? And this series, Redeemed for God, that we're going through in Exodus over eight weeks, um, so it's pretty fast. It's the second book uh, in the Bible. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And those five books make up what's called the Torah. Um, They're written mostly by Moses. He was the one who uh, leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And then he writes these books, and the last one, Deuteronomy, is actually like his last sermon he's giving to the people before he dies, before they enter the Promised Land. And these five books... Uh, they answer, they're really Israel's origin story, the nation of Israel's origin story, like who are we, where did we come from, uh, who is God, and where is he taking us, and what, what is, uh, what's wrong, and how is it being fixed? They answer the big questions of life. And we're in the second book, Exodus, uh, which is recording the event of the Exodus, of the people of Israel leaving Egypt. This happened around 1200 or 1500 BC, so over 3,000 years ago. And it's a story about freedom. For Israel, But it also points to the freedom we all need because where the Torah starts, it starts in Genesis with the creation of the whole world, with the creation of the first people and what life was intended to be and then how it has got ruined, how it's not supposed to be anymore. And so it points to the freedom we all need. And so, so far we've done uh, two messages in this book. Uh, we saw uh, the chapters 1 and 2, that things are not how they're supposed to be. That the people of Israel are enslaved by the nation of Egypt that they've been there for like 400 years. And the Pharaoh is so afraid of these people rising up and rebelling that he first enslaves them, and then he starts killing their male babies because he's so afraid of them. And then we saw last week that uh, God begins to act. God sees that things are not the way they're supposed to be. He hears the cries of his people, and then he begins to act, and he's going to act through a man named Moses. And this week we're going to see how Moses... Confronts Israel's enslavers. How God uses Moses to confront Israel's enslavers, and I said it's on page 49 that we're going to be looking. <clears throat> but this is really, as Connor and I were planning this service, it's really you know kind of intense. Even the scripture reading we read about how God goes through and strikes down all the firstborn, like that's really intense. And this need we wanted this to be uh, a somber uh, service because it's bringing us to a point of looking inside of ourselves to see how are we like Pharaoh. How do we actually act like that towards God? And so let me just, I'm just going to you know, name all the ten plagues. If, if if you know the story of the Bible, have seen your Prince of Egypt, that uh, animated film, you know there's like these ten plagues that God sends on Pharaoh to try and get him to loosen his grip on the people of God. like, He goes and tells them, let my people go. And then he's, if Pharaoh refuses, then God's going to send these plagues one after another. And each chance he gets a he, each plague, he gets a chance to, are you going to let my people go now? And if he says no, then this plague comes. And so I'm just going to go through them. We're not going to really explain them. There's uh, the water into blood where Moses takes water out of the Nile River and he pours it out and turns into into blood. Uh, there's frogs, the land of Egypt just filled with these frogs. And number three is gnats. And if you're like, gnats, you know, what's up with these bugs? Not a big deal. Well, if you've grown up in northern Wisconsin, like I did, you would know how annoying bug, little bugs can be, you know, <laughs> mosquitoes that are just eating you live. So the third one is gnats. Fourth one, flies all over the place. The fifth one, the Egyptian livestock all die. Six, people get boils on their skin. Seven, there's this hail that comes down and destroys all the crops. Eight, there's locusts that come through and eat everything up. Nine, there's just darkness over the land of Egypt. And the 10th is the death of the firstborn. And so we're not going to go through all those and all the details of them. What I'm going to do is give you some of the themes that run throughout all 10 of these. And so uh, one of the themes that's repeated over and over is the phrase or the sentence, let my people go. That's repeated seven times throughout these 10 plagues. God, Moses, God speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go. And it's a command, a command to free these people. And then... Another theme is that there's this warning of what's going to happen if he doesn't listen. So he says, let my people go, and here's this warning. If you don't let them go, here's what's coming. And so Pharaoh knows full well, like, if I don't do this, here's what's coming upon me. And so that happens over and over again. There's also the phrase where uh, God tells Moses, stretch out your hand. That he's either supposed to stretch out his hand, and then the plague happens, or stretch out his staff, and then the plague happens. And we read earlier that... Uh, God says, I'm going to bring my people out with an outstretched hand, with a mighty arm. I'm going to come, I'm going to take them out. And so Moses is God's outstretched hand, you know, kind of a physical representation of like, stretch out your hand, um, he's through who, the person through whom God is working. There's multiple times that Pharaoh asks Moses, uh, like the plague is so bad, he says, plead to God for me, I have sinned, please forgive me, I will let the people go now. And so then Moses will go and plead to God and say, God, would you relieve him? Of this thing that's going on, and God would bring bring relief, and then all, and then Pharaoh would change his mind. Now that he had found relief, he would change his mind, and so you knew his like repentance wasn't real. He asked, he said, "I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm going to do it now." And then he would turn, uh, he would uh, change his mind. Another theme is that uh, Pharaoh's servants, uh, the people that are working in his household, his they call them his magicians. They can reproduce the first couple plagues. Like, oh sure, we can turn you know, water, red, or we can do this. But then after a while, after like the third one, they're not able to. Uh, and then they start telling Pharaoh, this is, the, this is the finger of God. This is God at work. We can't reproduce this. This is something that, you know, we can't come up with. And they start telling him, you need to let these people go because this is God acting uh, against us in this situation. There's several times where uh, Pharaoh tries to negotiate because Moses will say, let my people go. And then Pharaoh will say, uh, sure, you can go, but just don't go too far. And he's like, no, we have to go to the spot God told us to go. And then the next time it'll be, okay, you can go, but only the men leave the women and children behind. And no, it's all the people that need to go. And then eventually he said, okay, fine, you can go, but leave your animals behind. And they say, no, we're taking our animals with us. We need them to offer these sacrifices to God. And so he tries to negotiate. And the seventh um, quick theme we're going to do, we're going to go in depth into two, but another theme is uh, God makes a distinction. He'll tell to Pharaoh, look, I'm going to make a distinction between Egypt and the people of Israel where this thing that's going to happen is only going to happen to Egypt and my people are not going to be hurt by it. And so it's kind of like these targeted you know, missile strikes, targeted plagues where it's like, okay, you could see this as just like, well, you know, it's just a bad weather. You know, that hail was just bad weather. Oh, locusts, you know, they came. That happens all the time. But no, it would be like, why are all the Egyptians having this mm-hmm. plague come upon them but the people of Israel aren't? So it made this uh, show that God was doing it. I want to go in-depth into two themes, and one is uh, Pharaoh's hard heart. And it's the only thing mentioned in every plague. It's mentioned 20 times, and there's three ways it's mentioned. One is Pharaoh hardened his heart, one is God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and third is Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So it could be Pharaoh hardened his heart, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh's heart was hardened with no you know, person acting on it that's, that's named. And this, God saw this would happen early on when he's giving Moses' His game plan in chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. He said, you know, Pharaoh isn't going to let you go. He's going to harden his heart. He's not going to listen. He's not going to let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand, meaning God's going to have to do something to get him to let the people go. Secondly, uh, in 421, while God is telling Moses, you're going to do these miracles before Pharaoh, but he says, I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And so it's like both are happening at once. At the same time, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. God sees that coming. And also God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And, but you know that might be like, well, why, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? He wants him to let the people go. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart against doing what he's telling Pharaoh to do? And before God takes any action in, in this whole situation, let's just consider the state of Pharaoh's heart before God does anything. So as a human being, he has a heart that is resistant to God. Just as a human being, all of us have a heart resistant to God. And what's the easiest and surest way to harden somebody's heart? is to tell them what to do, especially tell them something they don't want to do. And so the, our human heart's default response to God's commands is to harden. Default, without God doing anything in us, our default response to God's commands, to telling us what to do, is to harden. So that's as a human being. As an Egyptian Egyptians valued a hard heart in public life to appear firm and unshaken and after death uh, to, like, testify that they didn't have any wrongdoing. And so as an Egyptian, he valued a hard heart to be sure firm and unshaken. And then third, as Pharaoh, Pharaoh was considered a god and the only king. Like, if you're in the nation of Egypt, Pharaoh isn't just like, you know, President Biden. It's like, this guy is a god that is on earth ruling us. He's the only king. And so Moses comes to this person, who has all this going on inside of him already. And what Moses says, the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go. And so how is this going to go when you've got a guy who, as a human being, already has a hard heart, as an Egyptian, values a hard heart, and as Pharaoh believes himself to be God and king on earth? How is that going to go to tell him to do something? And this is Pharaoh's response. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not Israel go. He's like, the Lord? The God of Israel? I don't care. Like, I'm the one who runs this show. And so we could ask, well, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart then? When we're told Pharaoh hardened his heart, or God hardened, his, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we could consider, well, how might I harden someone's heart? Or how might you harden someone's heart? I'm just going to give you three examples. One is, uh, if you think about children, a, a child that likes to please other people, tell them to clean their room, it's done. (laughs) They're going to clean their room because they want to please you. But then a child that uh, is kind of more independent, wants to do things their own way, uh, the most sure way to keep their room a mess is to tell them to clean their room. Because they're like, no, I don't want to do that. And so that's kind of hardening somebody's heart by telling them what to do. Secondly, we say this phrase, you made me angry. And then we might say, well, no one can really make you angry. It's a choice, right? You have to choose to be angry. But really that's not totally true because you've had instances where somebody kind of pushes your buttons like say that just right thing and in an instant you are angry you didn't make a choice you didn't think about it you weren't didn't pre-plan it was just like they did it and it came out and so like there is a sense in which I can make you angry in other words I can harden you towards me if I'm pushing your buttons that's what we can do on a human level and thirdly a mentor in my life he's He's told me that sometimes the harder you push someone to do something, the more resistant they become to doing it. And so the more you try to get someone to do something, the more unlikely that they're actually going to do it. If, somebody, if you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, maybe you've had that experience where if you've talked to somebody, and you're trying to get them to do something, the more you talk, the more kind of hard and rigid and unmoving they become. And they might even say, like, I, don't, I was thinking about doing it before, but now I just don't even want to do it because of how hard you're pushing me. And so these instances where we've actually experienced our hearts being hardened by what somebody else does, or you've seen what you've done is hardening somebody else's heart. But there's both, right? Both people are at play. And so how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? I appreciated this quote. I'll share it with you. God simply revealed himself. He revealed his power, supremacy, love for his people, hatred of sin, through the signs and wonders of the plagues. It was his revel- this revelation of God that hardened his heart. And so I, that, that, uh, how he said, God simply revealed himself. God really only had to be himself in order for Pharaoh to harden his heart. Because Pharaoh, as he sees himself, is God on earth and is the only king. And now you have God coming to him saying, I'm the God of Israel. I'm going to take my people out. You need to let them go. So another person is saying they're God and acting like king. And so that's competition to Pharaoh. That's a threat to what he's doing. And so Pharaoh's hardening is a predictable response to another god or king telling him what to do. Who do you, Who is this god of Israel? The Lord? I've never heard of this guy. I'm not going to let the people go. It's a predictable response. He, god pushed his buttons. And the way I was kind of imagining it is like, if you have a magnet and you put the two like ends together, you know, the positive ends together, they're gonna push each other away. And so, Pharaoh thinks he's God and king. God is coming and saying he is king, and so they're the same, so they're gonna push each other. Pharaoh's gonna, just naturally, God just has to move closer to Pharaoh, and it's gonna push him away, it's gonna harden him. But if Pharaoh could flip and see himself as someone created by God, as a human being, now he's the opposite, there's God, and then the, the human being that's been created, Now there's an attraction there of wanting to go towards God. But because they're both trying to be God, he gets repelled. And this brings us to the purpose. So hard heart is one of the big themes. Purpose is the second theme we're going to go into of God saying, what is the purpose in bringing these plagues? Why am I doing this to Egypt? Why am I doing this to Pharaoh? And he talks about within the plagues, there's seven times that God says the purpose. And here's a couple ways it's expressed. Uh, most often it's that you may know I am the Lord. And it's actually a dual purpose. A lot of it is like so that Egypt and so that Pharaoh may know that he is the Lord, that he is God. And also so Israel, as they're being saved, would know that God is the Lord. So it's so that you may know that I'm the Lord, that no one is like me, no one is like the Lord our God, and that the earth is the Lord. So some the purpose statements are really about uh, God showing who he is, that he's revealing himself to be the Lord, The God, the earth is his, and he's letting his people know, and he's letting Egypt know, I am the Lord, I am God. And he says in chapter 9, verse 16 to Pharaoh, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then chapter 12, verse 12, he says, I'm doing this to execute judgments on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So you could see it as God is revealing himself, he's answering this question, who's the real God around here? Who's the real king around here? Is it Pharaoh, this person who's saying, no, I'm not letting God's people go, they're mine. I want them for my slave labor. I want them to keep building the stuff uh, that I want built around here. I'm holding on to them. And so who is God around here? Who is king around here? And God is really answering that question. He's revealing himself to be Lord, to be king, to be God. And so we have is the same event with the same purpose of knowing God, to reveal who God is. And yet there's two very different responses to that event. Is that One is that Pharaoh hardens, and he gets these judgments, these plagues that come on him. And then Israel gets salvation from it. So one, on the one hand, the same event both judges somebody and saves somebody. The same event, same purpose, but different responses to it. And God says, this is a big theme in the Bible, that God opposes the proud... It gives grace to the humble, and if there's any way you could describe Pharaoh in this, is that he is proud. God Himself telling Pharaoh to do something, he just says, "No, over and over and over. Again. I'm not going to let your people go." And if we went to the New Testament, <clears throat> we see another event that's experienced in two separate ways: salvation, uh, a salvation event, which is the cross. In First Corinthians, chapter one, God, uh, the Apostle Paul, who's a follower of Jesus, writing to the church in Corinth, and he's helping them along in their uh, relationship with Jesus, their relationship with God. And he says, look, the, the cross, we're talking about the cross, that this man, Jesus Christ, we're proclaiming him as king, died on a cross to pay for our wrongs against God. He says to Gentile, to Greek people, it sounds foolishness. Like, what are you talking about? What king dies? This sounds ridiculous. <laughs> that just sounds dumb. And on the other side, Jewish people hearing the Messiah, the Christ, died on a cross. No, that's not how it works. He wasn't coming to be killed by the Romans. He was coming to defeat the Romans. And so this is, they call, they call it a stumbling block that as the, if you're telling a Jewish person, yeah, the Messiah that you've been waiting for, who's going to defeat all the human empires that keep, you know, oppressing you as a people, he's going to come and kick them all out of the land. He's going to give your land back and you have the kingdom of God on earth. And you're saying that guy that we've been waiting for, he died by the Roman empire. He was supposed to defeat them. That's just, that's just craziness. And so the same event, the cross, is foolishness and a stumbling block and offense to some people, but it also says that to those who believe, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Same event, the cross. Some people hardened by it, some people softened by it and drawn towards God. Same thing in second, That was First Corinthians, Second Corinthians. I think uh, chapter one that they, talks about the, the message of Jesus died for you to save you because he loves you. To some people, that's like the smell of death, and some people, that's the smell of life. Same thing, two different reactions or responses. And then in Romans chapter 7, uh, the law, talking about God's law, God's command, says apart from God softening our hearts to it, it actually makes us sin more because we hear it and it arouses this rebelliousness in us. Like, no one's going to tell me what to do. Like, I'm just, now that God, I know I'm supposed to do it, now I get hardened to it. And then uh, the person writing this book says, okay, so if God's commands are creating, leading people to sin, does that mean God's laws are bad? He says, no, no, the laws are good, but it's that thing inside of us that what that uh, the, the default response of the human heart to being told what to do is, no, I'm not going to do it to do to harden. So when we respond to that law, we harden, but it doesn't make God's laws or commands bad but it's something in us that is responding and so God is revealing himself he hardens and he judges Pharaoh but he saves Israel now we're going to spend just a bit of time on the tenth play, the last one which Connor read a bit about that and uh, what happened this goes from chapter 11 through chapter 13 and God tells Moses okay this time this last one Pharaoh will let you go and I'm going to make a distinction within, within the land that uh, thing, this thing is going to happen to the Egyptians, but it's not going to happen to the Israelites. And he says, you're going to warn him that it's coming, but he's not going to listen to it because his heart is going to be hard. And then what uh, Moses instructs the people to do, he says, all of you, this is in chapter 12, uh, take a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, bring it in your house, and have it there for four days. And then at twilight, uh, everybody in Israel is going to kill that lamb, and they're going to take blood and put it on their doorposts. And they're going to roast the lamb. And you're going to eat it with unleavened bread uh, and bitter herbs. And you're going to have your belt fastened on, your sandals on, your staff in your hand. And you're going to eat it in haste. Because what's about to happen is Egypt is going to say, please get out of here. And you're going to have all your stuff on. And you're going to be ready to go and leave Egypt. so, and then God calls us, this is the Lord's Passover. I want to read you uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 13 of what, why God is doing this, chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Why is God doing this thing where he's going to go through the land and he's going to has the um, Israelites put this blood on their doorposts and he tells them, uh, everybody who doesn't have the blood on their doorposts, the firstborn child in their home is going to die. Why is God going to do this? Chapter 12, verse 12. For or because I will pass through the land of Egypt that night I'll strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so put the blood on your doorpost, and this is how it gets named Passover. I will pass over every house with the blood on the doorpost. And so when, we'll jump down to verse 29, chapter 12, verse 29, when it happens at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless... Me also. And so finally, God passes through the land and He passes over every house that has the blood um, of the lamb on its doorpost. And then verses 33 through 42 is the actual Exodus. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders people of Israel, Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. And so note there that this has actually been said uh, three times before this, that God, which it may, it means it's not just a random thing, that God says when you leave, you're going to take, the Egyptians are actually going to just give you stuff. Um, not just because we're, they're afraid, but just like, please leave, just take my gold and stuff. And often it's called plundered, but actually they're willingly giving their gold and stuff. They've been living in Egypt for 430 years. Some of these people might be friends, they might know them, but they also might just, we also read that they have this reverence and respect for God at this point. they're like, please take this as like an offering. And what's cool is later, uh, you could think of this as the spoils of war, that God has uh, you know, acted in war and then they're giving it. And later on, uh, they uh, build the tabernacle with it, the mobile, the mobile tent that they build later in Exodus 35, and the, the altar and they, all the gold. It's like, where did they get all that stuff? Well, it's because all this gold was sent out with them. So continuing on, um, verse 36, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sights of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked, Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men in foot, besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, um, both flocks and her- herds. And it's interesting, a mixed multitude. We think, oh, the nation of Israel, they're all Hebrews, all the same ethnicity. But this is saying there's a mixed multitude of other people that were in Egypt that decided, I'm going to go out with these people. Maybe they're enslaved. Maybe they're Egyptians. Who knows? But they all go out with them. Verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it is not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. So 430 years they're there, and then they get let out by God. That's a long time. That's older than our country. <laughs> uh, that's That they're there in Egypt, and however long they're enslaved. Back in verse 14 of chapter 12, God said, This will be a memorial day. When they do this Passover feast, this is going to be a mor- memorial day. I want you to keep doing this down through the generations, and what happens is there's the Passover feast, and then seven days of the feast of unleavened bread because they had to leave. There wasn't any time to let their dough rise. They had to leave with their bread unleavened, and you're going to remember this every single year. And two times here, right, right here in verse uh, chapter 12, verses 26 through 27, God says, when you're doing this ritual, when you're doing this practice of the Passover feast, and, and He says, when your child says, "What is the meaning of this? Why are we doing this?" He says. Tell them the story of how God brought us out of Egypt and that he went through the land of Egypt to free us. And then, chapter 13, God then, through verses uh, in that chapter, he says, okay, what you what's going to happen is uh, when you're living in the land, I want you to redeem all of your firstborn, all of your firstborn kids, all of your firstborn animals. Why? Because I want you to remember your firstborn were spared in Egypt when I passed over your houses. And so this ritual too of like every firstborn animal, every firstborn kid reminds them what happened back in uh, Egypt and they're supposed to answer again when their kids say, what does this mean? Why are we doing this? You need to tell them. Tell them the story of how God saved us. He led us out. And so you see these community practices that God gives them to celebrate and remember what God has done for them who they are, whose we are, what's our story, all these things that happen every year. This is who we are. This is our story. This is what God's done for us. And now we, we do those similar things. Christmas time, Jesus' uh, incarnation, his birth into the world as a human being. Uh, and Good Friday and Easter, Jesus' death and resurrection. But as we think about for ourselves, I want to ask this question why does God's judgment pass over the people of Israel? Why are they spared? Why are they saved from what happened to all the Egyptians? When God goes through the whole nation, why are they spared from it? It's not because their hearts were less hard, actually, because in just a couple chapters, we're going to see them complaining in the wilderness. Would you lead us? Why would you lead us in the desert, Moses? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? You had to lead us out here to die? They don't trust God. They have these hard hearts towards God. And they eventually, with some of the gold they took out of Egypt, they make this thing that's a golden calf, and they say, look, this is our God that brought us out of Egypt. As the explicit command is, do not make things out of metal and wood and stone to worship. And they do this out when after they leave. When they reach the edge of the promised land, uh, they don't trust God to lead them in there. After all this they saw in Egypt, and all they've done, they say, no, 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 the people there are too strong for us. We can't go in. They don't trust. And Moses, when he's in Deuteronomy, when he's given this final sermon, and he's about to die, and the people are going to go into the land. He says he's giving them all these commands of God: love God with all your heart, love you know, love love Him, make Him first. And he says, but I know you're not going to do it. He says, I know you're not going to keep what I the commands that has told you. Why? Because you have hard, stubborn hearts. You're not going to do it. And then we further in Israel's history. One of the prophets named Ezekiel, he talks to them about this promise of God's going to take that heart of stone within you and he's going to turn it soft to a heart of flesh. A heart that is, not that we literally have a heart of stone that turns into a heart of flesh, but that hard heart towards God is going to be made soft to respond to God. And so why are they not judged in the same way Pharaoh is for having a hard heart? And the only answer is because of the blood of the lamb that they put on their doorposts. God passed over them. They would also be dead unless they trusted God's way to be saved. This is how you can be saved. Put the blood of this lamb on your doorpost. And we discover that Pharaoh isn't their biggest problem because deep inside, they all have the same hard heart that Pharaoh has. And we might even, you know, they might think to themselves, or we might think to ourselves, you know, run down the Ten Commandments. Well, I haven't stolen lately uh, I haven't murdered anybody lately. You know the Ten Commandments are pretty, you know, pretty easy to follow. Some of those, and we might think like I'm a pretty good person. But then when you come to Jesus, He says, No, no, no. Look inside at your heart. Peel back the layers. Let's take the filter off of this. What you put out to the world that you, what's really inside of you? And He says, You have hate in there. You have lust in there. You have greed in there. You may not be stealing or murdering, but you are hating and you're jealous. And so the reality is that everyone deserves the same judgment as Pharaoh, because our hearts are hard, and we don't listen to God. And so the people, they were freed from Pharaoh, but they weren't yet freed from what was enslaving them on the inside, of making them have this response to God that is unwilling and unmoving. And we all have a hard heart, a fatal heart disease that we that will lead to death unless God does heart surgery on us, unless he changes us. And so we, we see the Passover. And that Passover meal that God instituted was kept year after year after year for over a thousand years. And then Jesus came. And Jesus announced a ministry of freedom to people. A new exodus is coming. Freedom. I'm going to lead people out of this. And then Jesus' last supper, the last supper was the Passover, that his disciples were celebrating the Passover together. Having that lamb, having their stuff, you know, all their stuff on, ready to go. Having the bitter herbs and going around the table and remembering, what did God do for us uh, a thousand years earlier in leading us out of Egypt? Remembering, you know, what does this mean? And then Jesus says, He's going to change it. He says, This is why I want you to remember me, that you're going to say, This is my blood given for you, this is my body broken for you. So Jesus, identifying himself with the lamb that was killed back at the Exodus, saying. It's not that lamb's blood. I'm the lamb now. My blood is being given for you, that you might be saved, that you would not have this plague befall on you. And Jesus, we deserve, we all deserve the plagues for having our hearts against God. And Jesus takes the plague in our place, the plague of death in our place. And God, think about this: that the firstborn sons die. But God sends his firstborn son, not that there was a moment when Jesus was born, he always has been, eternally God's firstborn son, but that God sends his firstborn son to take the plague in our place so that we don't die, that he takes it for us. And if you think about it this way, the Passover is the cross of the Old Testament. The Passover is the cross of the Old Testament. It's the death that dealt the the final blow to the enemy that God's people will be delivered, that the the Passover was when this lamb died in the people's place, and the cross is when Jesus as the lamb died in our place so that his blood uh, put over our doorposts, you not know, literally, but spiritually would free us. And so Jesus' death in our place makes our freedom possible. The lamb's death in the Passover is what made their freedom possible. Finally, the Pharaoh lets them go, and how we're finally let go of sin and Satan and death is by Jesus' death in our place. And the reality is that Jesus died for the hard hearted. But he also gives us a new heart. He gives us more, not just the forgiveness, but he also comes and gives us that soft heart that we would be responsive to God. And so, apart from God's merciful softening, the human's heart's default response to God's commands is to harden. And we'd have the same response as Pharaoh without God's intervention. And the only thing that saves us from the same judgment as Pharaoh is the blood of the lamb in our place. And so, you know, if you look at Pharaoh and think We're, you're better than him, like, I mean, he kind of looks dumb, doesn't he? It's like, oh, how, how thick can you be, Pharaoh? <laughs> it seems like this crazy thing is happening. I mean, maybe the first three plagues, you've been like, that was a coincidence. I don't know how he did that, but that was a coincidence. You think by like six or seven, he would be kind of getting it through his head. And he kind of started, he does, right? He's like, please, Moses, pray for me. Uh, forgive me, I have sinned, and then he changes his mind as soon as it releases. And if you look at Pharaoh and think, oh, what an idiot, Uh, and you don't see how we're like him, then it's possible that you have a hard heart now even, when we compare to other people and feel that we're better than them, instead of considering how we're like him in need of God's grace. That's how we know our heart is soft, and we don't look at other people or look in the Bible and think, I'm doing better than they're doing, but if we see I'm just like them, and I would be in the same situation as them if it wasn't for God's work in my life. Because can't we be as stubborn as Pharaoh? Not letting go of the things in our life that it's quite obvious God is saying, let go of that, let go of that. That's not good for you. And we hold on to it and hold on to it and hold on to it. Mm-hmm. And are we obeying you know, everything that we know that God has told us? I mean, we know a lot more than we obey, right? <laughs> we know a lot more of what God has told us than we are keeping and obeying. And so we are like Pharaoh. But the th- real thing that separates us from God, sin separates us from God. Our hard heart separates us from God. Our saying no to what God commands, saying yes to what God forbids, that keeps us from God. Only if we will not be real about it. Only if we will not bring it into the light before God and say, I'm just like him. I need your forgiveness. And so it's, sin only separates you from God if you will not confess it if we will not bring it to God for the blood of the Lamb to cover it and to save us from it. Let's pray. Mm. <coughs> Father, it's, it's beyond words to really capture what you've done for us, what Jesus has done for us. Would you help us to be a people that come to you with all the ways that we are stubborn and refuse to do what you say Would you let us receive your free forgiveness for it? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.